Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcella Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 16. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 16 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a content solutions architect and a certified Contentful professional. Today, I'll be chatting all about JavaScript with my guest, Daniel Cortez, a self-taught developer who's been working on web projects for the last eight years. Daniel is currently a lead front-end developer at Albert, an ad tech company. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit ContentfulCreators.com. All right, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Glad to have you here. You are the JavaScript king, right? <laughs> I don't know if I'd say king, but I, I like to think boss. That Let's I know just a say boss. Bit about the there you go. What's <laughs> the, the JavaScript boss? I think that's better. That has a nicer ring. You can even use that as your Twitter name if you want. I might have to update my bio after this. I think so. All right, sounds good. Well, hey, listen. Before we get started on talking all about JavaScript, why don't you tell us about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the front end lead at a company here in Chicago called Albert. We're an education technology company, uh, and we service mostly high schools throughout the country with test prep and just general ways for students to do better in school. Prior to Albert, I was working at a agency here in Chicago, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth with the whole software space. I started off doing UX and strategy, but then really just fell in love with development. And I had the opportunity to start transitioning over to development full-time at Albert. So I took that opportunity and I've uh, been there for about five years. I've uh, been the lead for about a year at this point. And yeah, I'm just a huge JavaScript diehard. So what is it that attracted you so much to JavaScript? Why are you such a diehard of JavaScript? Well, so to be honest, when I made that transition over to Albert, I started off doing mostly like CSS and really working, focusing on the design of the application. So I was the first uh, front-end hire, but my role was kind of more focused on making the platform look and perform well. But... We were using, and we still are actually using React. So it was kind of a, I didn't really have a choice. You know, that's where I learned how to program in that ecosystem. So the choice of the language was really made for me. But as I've been working with it for the last five years, I really just grown to love how much you can do with it and how quickly you can get going. I see. So anything specific that has kept you going in JavaScript? Because I understand the choice was not yours to get into it, but you obviously stayed. So what's keeping you there? What is it that you love the most? And the flip side of that coin is what is it that you don't like or you would like to see changed? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like, you know, like JavaScript is a very ubiquitous language. It, it's the language of the browser. So as a web developer, it's kind of like the lingua franca of the web. And because it's so ubiquitous, it's got a huge community building a ton of really great tools and driving the ecosystem forward. And also, I feel like since ES6, it's actually become a fairly robust, I wouldn't call it elegant, but it's definitely become more robust of a language. And you can do a lot with it. And also, you know, going back to the whole ubiquity statement, like it through JavaScript, you can make a website, write a server, 
using tools like React Native, for instance, you can make a native application. You can just do so much with it that I, I feel like it's uh, it's just incredibly versatile. But yeah, like on, on that flip side, I do feel like its history has caused some warts in the language. As I mentioned, it's not the most elegant language. There's, especially pre-ES6, there were a lot of gotchas and foot guns that you had to be aware of. And also since it's multi-paradigm, you know, you can do more object-oriented programming with it. You can do functional programming. It's not like the community has rallied in one direction. Is it that you just have too many choices and there's no like standard way of doing things? Yeah, I mean, it can definitely feel that way at times. Like sometimes you do just feel a little bit overwhelmed with all the different ways that you can approach problem solving. Right. Sometimes too many choices is not a good thing, right? Right. So today we're talking about JavaScript, plain old vanilla JavaScript. What is the difference between just vanilla JavaScript and a JavaScript framework, let's say React or Angular or Node or whatever? Yeah, so the way that I like to think about it is vanilla JavaScript is as close as you can get to the actual ECMAScript spec. So when you're you know dealing with the features that have been defined by the language creators themselves, as well as the APIs that the browser provides. You know, when folks are talking about vanilla JavaScript, they're really talking about like writing a script from scratch yourself and not really uh, leaning into those tools that provide their own APIs and that sort of thing. But I think like on the vanilla JavaScript side to the framework side, there's kind of like it's a sliding scale where, you know, you can use some libraries, which is kind of more in the middle to solve some of your problems without going all the way to the framework, like Angular, for instance, which is very batteries included, and it tries to solve a lot of problems for you. Manila JavaScript really is just, you know, using the features that are available in the language and in the browsers. So would you agree that really before you jump and learn any kind of framework that uses JavaScript, do you really understand plain vanilla JavaScript before you jump into those? Or can you jump into those without really understanding just JavaScript? Yeah, so can you? Yes. Is it ideal? I would say that it's probably better. It's certainly better, actually, to have a solid understanding of vanilla JavaScript before you start going into those more advanced frameworks. Because at the end of the day, you know, those frameworks, like when you're writing Angular code or React code, you are using JavaScript. And although the frameworks do provide a lot of the functionality that you're going to be using, you oftentimes do need to be writing uh, more vanilla JavaScript in order to implement your features. And it just gives you a better sense of just what's actually happening in the browser on the page, like how it all works together. Again, can you just dive into React and like learn programming through going straight to a framework? You can, but I would recommend, you know, going through using resources like MDN, for instance, and actually learning about the language and the features that are available within it. I think where it's easy to go to the framework first is when things go right. The problem is when things go wrong and you really have to understand what's going on behind the scenes. That's where having an understanding of JavaScript, the core JavaScript, is very helpful, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also worth acknowledging that, you know, tools like React and even other tools like Vue, for instance, they're taking care of a smaller slice than what frameworks used to take care of. I feel like frameworks used to be much more feature rich. And we've kind of come to this place where it's almost like we realize that not every problem can be solved using the same set of tools. So tools like React and Vue, for instance, they, they'll take care of the Vue layer, for example. And that means that in order to implement some of your more application-specific features, you're going to need to be writing some closer to vanilla JavaScript in order to actually, you know, create those abstractions that you're going to end up wanting to use to make sure that 
you know, development just can keep on happening at a good pace. Definitely. All right. Well, why don't we jump into the details? I have a lot of questions here that I've asked Twitter to submit and we're going to be all over the place because people want to know about a lot of things about JavaScript. So why don't we start with is JavaScript synchronous or asynchronous? And explain the difference between the two. And then if you want to get into a little more detail, explain what a wait is. Yeah, absolutely. So JavaScript is a synchronous, single-threaded language. You know, when a function is running, it it's running top to bottom. Uh, you've got the, the call stack, and that's going to run in, in one predetermined order. That said, there are asynchronous operations that you can use through JavaScript. So for instance... If you're going to use fetch to get some data from an API, if you use set timeout, for instance, to delay calling some code till later, those things are asynchronous. But that doesn't mean that JavaScript is an asynchronous language. It, it is processing its operations, you know, step by step, and it can only do one thing at a time. And I think that's helpful to know because the model that JavaScript takes is kind of a little bit quirky, a little bit interesting, and it actually, I think having a, a good understanding of it makes some things that we do make more sense. So for instance, you know, when you have an operation running and you want to kick something off to, so like, let's say that you want your function to do something after it completes. Many of us have used something along the lines of set timeout with zero. So it's What's actually happening there is since JavaScript is synchronous, it encounters that asynchronous task and kicks it off to what's called a, a queue. So it offloads that to the browser, which is now outside of the JavaScript like land, and basically says, hey, browser, I'm going to give you a callback function, and you, at some point in time, you're going to send me that back, and then I'm going to complete that operation. But it is still going top to bottom. Like it's going line by line, executing its things. The call stack grows. And then the browser is like, hey, JavaScript, remember this thing that you told me about? Have it back, run it. And then that is then executed at the very end there. So while JavaScript is synchronous, the browser and uh, Node, for instance, and now Dino provide functionality to run things asynchronously. But that's happening outside of the JavaScript runtime. And there's... APIs that JavaScript itself uses to communicate with those things. Got it. So let's talk about the await keyword, because that's very important when it comes to asynchronous, right? Yeah, absolutely. So async functions, which, you know, is a, one of the newer like features of JavaScript, they introduced a way to write JavaScript functions and make it look as if they were halting, let's say, like throughout the function. And that's what uh, async functions and the await keyword really do, and that's built on top of promises. So if you have an async function, and in there, you know, you have the functions doing certain things, but then you say await and give it a, for instance, like a promise that needs to resolve or even some value, actually. What JavaScript is doing is before it continues running the body of that function, it will wait for that value to resolve. And that lets us write functions that look a lot cleaner, in my opinion, because you're able to write functions that are very uh, flat instead of having the more traditional promise, like then callbacks. And, you know, sometimes you end up with like deeply nested then statements and it starts to look like a little bit of a pyramid there. But yeah, ultimately await is just uh, async functions with the await keyword is an abstraction over promises. And its purpose is really to almost turn that into a synchronous, right? Because for example, if the next line 
of code depends on the function, which is asynchronous to return some data, it's going to break because it's going to return a promise for that data before you can execute on it. It's just a promise. So if you give it the await, correct, it would actually wait until the data comes back. Then you can use the data somewhere else in your code. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it basically... It will stop evaluating until the value resolve. Right. And that's very important for a transaction, let's say, if you need to do a whole transaction on everything. Right. Absolutely. So if you're fetching data from an API, you can just use a wait and then you'll be sure that when the next line is called, you'll have that data back from the API. That makes sense. Yep, totally. What's the difference between prototypes and ES6 classes? Yeah, so ES6 introduced a ton of new features to the language and almost to the point where between ES5 and ES6, it's like a, it's a, almost like a new thing. But a lot of it is actually syntactic sugar. And I think this is one of those things that threw some people off because, you know, like in ES6, JavaScript all of a sudden had classes. But really what JavaScript did was introduce a syntax that looks like other languages' uh, classes, but keeps its prototypical inheritance model that it uses under the hood. And in order to really understand what's going on, I think it makes sense to talk about the constructor functions first. So constructor functions are just a way to emulate or simulate classes in JavaScript. Oftentimes, we would write these functions using a, a capital letter in the beginning, and then you call them with new. And these were ways to create an object that had some you know, some methods in its prototype chain that would then be available on that object. So classes really are just syntactic sugar over that. It lets us do a similar thing without having to write those wonky looking functions that don't really look like how classes would look in other languages. But at the end of the day, ES6 classes and constructor functions are doing the same thing, which is creating objects that have certain methods in their prototype chain. Very cool. I got another question here. This is an interesting one because this one took me a little while for me to figure out myself, actually. But arrow functions. Yeah, no, arrow functions are fantastic. We use them all the time since they're more concise. They're just functions that, for one, they look cleaner, or I tend to think they look cleaner. They're more, it's a shorter syntax. Also, they have what's called implicit returns. So, you know, the arrow function looks like parentheses and then equals greater than that makes the little arrow. And then you can have a function body with opening and closing curly braces. And then you put the function body in there. If you omit the curly braces, it'll just return whatever's after the thing. So it lets you write like event handlers in React, for instance, a lot cleaner, that sort of thing. But the big difference between arrow functions and traditional functions is this and how that is treated. So with traditional functions, the value of this is very dependent on how you're calling that function, how it's defined. With arrow functions, they have what's called a lexical this. So they just inherit whatever value of this is in their lexical scope. And that doesn't really change. So it's a lot easier to, for instance, write an event listener, because if you're in a, like, I'm going to talk about React right now, because it's where I tend to use this the most. But if you're in a component and you have an event listener and you use an arrow function, you can be sure that the value of this in that component will be a reference to that component, where with a traditional function, that can get messed up, and then you have to do some complex stuff like binding the value of this, for instance. And it just is a lot cleaner of a way to make sure that the value of this is consistent. So you mentioned promises. Expand on promises. What are promises? Yeah, so promises are a 
very interesting type of data, which basically there are these classes that let you defer the resolution of a value. And I feel like that's maybe a, a bit hard to unpack, but I'll try my best. So the promise data type is, you know, you say promise and then you give it a callback. And in that callback function, you get two arguments, uh, resolve and reject. And until you do one of those two things, so until you resolve a promise or until you reject it, that promise is pending. And when you use those things, you can return a value. So if you resolve a promise with a value, that promise will return that value to a then method, which they have. And if you reject, it'll error. And a lot of the asynchronous tasks that certain browser APIs, library APIs, framework APIs use, use promises to run asynchronous uh, code. So for instance, when you use fetch, which is the browser's way to go and get some data from an API, it'll return a promise. And while that API call has yet to come back, that promise will be pending and you won't know the value of it. But then once that thing actually resolves, if it resolves successfully, then the promise will turn into a resolved promise. And then you can use the then method to pull that data out. If there's an error for some reason, it will throw an error and you can catch that error. And with promises, you know, going back to async and await, you can await the value of a promise and write that, you know, super clean, synchronous looking code in JavaScript that really just looks it looks nicer and is easier to reason about. So what's a good use of a promise? When would you want to use a promise versus just a regular function? So a promise is something that you would use when something that cannot be computed synchronously must happen. So if you know that you're writing a function that has all the things it needs in order to run and return a value, there's no need to reach for it. But let's say that that's not the case. You have to do some data fetching or maybe you have to wait for the user to take some action and those things aren't going to happen in a synchronous manner, a promise would be a good way to return something that the calling code can then await the value of. So once that thing does happen, then the calling code can continue to do its thing. So if you really don't need to use the data right away, you can use a promise to let it do its thing. And just all you need to check is to make sure that the promise was fulfilled or resolved. Exactly. Yep. But it doesn't stop you from moving on to other things within the code. Right. Okay. That makes sense. You also mentioned callbacks. Can you expand on callbacks? Yeah. So callbacks are one of those things that I still remember in the beginning just being like, oh, what, like, what are callbacks? I keep hearing this word. And I wish somebody would just have told me they're just functions. So callbacks are just functions that are being passed around and are then called by something else. So an example of a callback would be what you give to the add event listener method when you're adding an event to, let's say, a button's click event. So, you know, you say like, you get the button and then you say button add event listener. First argument would be click. And then the second argument is a function that you want to do something you know, when that button is clicked, that function is, we just call it a callback because it's called at a later time. And most of the time when we're talking about callbacks, we're talking about asynchronous callbacks. But if you're, you know, JavaScript has functions as first class citizens, so you can pass those around as values. We tend to call those callbacks as well. I see. So this one was a little bit hard for me to get at first, but then once I got it, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I love it. The spread operator. Oh my gosh. Definitely one of my favorite features. 
you know, another one of those newer features that really just like push the language forward. So this spread operator, it lets you unpack things, specifically lets you unpack iterables into its values, which is just a fancy way of saying if you have an iterable, uh, so for instance, if you have an array and you use the spread operator before it, like dot, 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 it'll unpack it into each of those values outside of an array. So for instance, say that I have a function that takes any number of arguments. So not just one argument, like literally as many as you want to pass it. And all it does is go through each of its arguments, console logs it. Let's call that function echo. So if I pass that echo function an array with the values one, two, and three, it will console log the entire array. But if I use the spread operator, those things get unpacked. And now I'm actually passing each one of the values in that array individually to that function. So then it'll console log one, then two, then three. And that's the gist of what it does. But that means that you can do things like unpack arrays into other arrays. So let's say that you have two arrays and you want to combine them. You can just have write a array that wraps the two arrays, use the spread operator on each of those arrays, and then you'll have one array of all the values in each of those arrays. Right, without using a for loop or anything like that. Right, exactly. And you can also use the spread operator to clone objects into other objects, which going back to the React land, you know, a lot of times when we're making sure that we're cloning state or, not or, but when you need to make sure that you're cloning the full object state, for instance, if you're using something like Redux, that lets you easily clone objects into other objects. And that's important because normally objects are not cloned. When you say an object equals another object, you're just setting a reference to that object, right? Right, yeah. So with the spread operator, you can actually take the values and clone them. Right, exactly. Cool. So this one is, I don't know myself, and this one is an interesting question that came up, which is what are symbols? Yeah, so symbols are a way to make truly unique values. And you can use them for... A number of reasons. These, I think symbols tend to be used more in like libraries when you're, you know, trying to write some of the, the inner workings of certain things. But a symbol is truly unique in that if you're trying to come up with statuses, for instance, like let's say that you're writing a library that has the concept of a status instead of using something like strings where, you know, string equality is based on the value, a symbol will make sure that wherever you declared the symbol, no other symbol could equal that symbol. So it's not something that I personally use very often, but it does have its use cases. Also, when you start thinking about other data types, symbols often work pretty well with things like maps, for instance, where you can use objects as keys. I think really like these more advanced data types tend to be more useful for library and framework authors. But at the end of the day, a symbol is a value that is unique you can give it a label in order to identify it better later. And yeah, I think primary use case, things like statuses or being used as keys in maps, for instance. And it's a primitive type, correct? Yes, it is a primitive type. So explain real quick the difference between primitive types and classes or objects. Yeah, so in JavaScript, it's a little bit more complicated than in other languages. I feel like you could say that about a lot of JavaScript features. But, you know, there are the primitive types... And I say that because technically a lot of the primitive types in JavaScript are actually objects. So for instance, there's like the string constructor with a bunch of methods. If you declare a string, which is technically a primitive, it will have 
uh, certain methods on itself. So it's really an object. But yeah, the primitive types, you know, there's Boolean numbers, strings, undefined, null, symbol is another one of the newer ones. And all those things tend to have what's called, well, when you are comparing a primitive to a primitive, if the values match, you know, you'll get true, where with objects, that's not the case. And then the object types, aside from object, you have arrays, maps, set, and the list kind of goes on and, and they're being added all the time, like uh, you and date arrays and dates and that sort of thing. But yeah, so the primitives are the ones that conceptually we would refer to as primitive. So again, Boolean number, string, undefined, null. And then the object types are all, you know, when you check them for the type of, you'll get object back. Right. Got another question for you here. What are generator functions? Yeah, so generator functions are functions that can pause their execution and yield a, a value in return. And then they can actually go back and, you know, when you call it again, you can pick up where you left off. And kind of along the same lines as symbols, they're these features that you don't see very often, but they do get used in certain libraries. One library that I remember using generator functions very extensively was Co. Before async await was a thing, you know, we wanted to write more asynchronous looking code. So we would use the Co library to be able to simulate what async await does and what it used under the hood was generator functions because, like I mentioned, it lets you pause execution. So generator function, you write it by saying function and then you put an asterisk after that. So where a normal function just says function, then the name generator functions are defined by saying function, then star, then the name. And in that function body, you have access to a yield keyword and that if you say yield and then a value, when you call that function, you'll get that yielded value back. There's a bit of a, you don't get the value directly. It, you actually get an object back with a value property, which is a value that was yielded. I believe there's a done property, which is if the generator function has reached the end or not. And then I believe there is a method, which now I think now I'm thinking about iterators. But yeah, you get a bit of an object back with the value, but then other additional information. What's interesting about generator functions is because they're possible, you can do things like write a while true loop. So, you know, if you said while true in a regular function, like that's it, like game over, your call stack's going to blow up and your program's going to lock. But in a generator function, you're actually totally fine saying while true and then yielding a result because you're going to be stuck in that loop forever, but you're not actually going to resume execution of the function until you call it again. I see. Got a couple more questions here before we get to the end of our podcast. We're almost there, but what are proxies? Yeah, proxies are another super interesting feature. They let you take a value. And if something's trying to access that value, you can actually intercept the thing that's trying to like get that value and do additional things with it. So there's a few different methods that you can use. There's, I believe, get, set, like call, apply, and depending on what you're proxying. So it's important to, to know that you're proxying values. But once you have a proxied value, for instance, you would use the get method to figure out what the calling code is trying to get out of an object, for instance. And you can really do whatever you want at that point. You can, you know, console log it or you can validate you know, that the thing that they're trying to get is is actually like valid. You more likely than not want to return the thing that you're trying to get. But yeah, it's like almost like a 
a way to like put a middle layer in between the thing that's trying to access your value and then the value itself. So you could do, for instance, there's a set method which lets you intercept and do custom things when something is trying to update the value of an object, for instance. And there, like say that you're working on a form, you could do things like make sure that the value that they're trying to set is valid and not allow setting that value if it's invalid. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What about modules? What are JavaScript modules? So JavaScript modules, it's, you know, like we, for a while now, have realized that writing one big file is probably not the most ideal way to write JavaScript. So this concept of like, how do we split up uh, JavaScript into, into different files so that we don't have to have this one massive file and we can actually separate things by like functionality, for instance, has come up and modules is a way to do that. So modules are scripts that can talk to other modules. They can export certain values or functions or whatnot that other modules can then import and make use of. And, you know, we've been, if you're uh, developing on Node, which uses the common JS syntax for breaking your files apart, we've been doing this sort of thing for a while, but now modules are actually a thing that browsers are implementing. And you can now have a script tag that is of type module and do that, that sort of thing that we've been doing like in the browser. So if you want to import a value from another module, you just say import and then whatever value it is that you want to import from the script. If you want to export, you can just say export, like export const, like foo equals one, two, three, and then other modules will have access to that value. And you can keep those things separate. They have their own context. So you can be sure that you're not accidentally like polluting a namespace, that sort of thing. That's a, actually a pretty cool feature. When was that released for the browser? I mean, obviously, like you said, it's been for Node for a long time. But what about for the browser? Do you know when that was released? Yeah, so to be honest, I don't actually know when this was released. But I do know that browser support is fairly good. You know, as with anything, just make sure that, you know, if you have a lot of users in IE, for instance, I would recommend going and checking something like Mozilla's documentation or caniuse.com to make sure that the feature is available and implemented. But for module support, it looks pretty good. It looks like uh, most browsers except for IE are supporting it right now. What's IE? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, Internet Explorer. No, I know. I know what it is. I, <laughs> I was on IE doing web development IE when it was IE6. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was fun times. We've come a long way. I know, I know. It was crazy times. But all right, well, Daniel, unfortunately, we're getting pretty close to the end here. So to bring closure to our podcast, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is what are closures in JavaScript? Um, yeah, so closures are functions that have access to their outer scope and they hold values that were declared in that outer scope. So Another one of those things where I wish somebody just told me, hey, closures are just functions. But yeah, closures are functions that are holding on to values that were defined outside of their body, which is a pretty cool thing that you can do with JavaScript. You know, like if the parent has defined a variable, it's available to that inner function, even once, you know, that function has like return, for instance. So just another way to, to pass data around, really. I see. Very cool. Well, we're going to bring full closure now to this uh, podcast. See what you did there. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Tip your waitress. I'll be here all night. Okay. <laughs> so, no, but all kidding aside, in your opinion, what's the future hold for JavaScript or what would you like it to hold for JavaScript? I think there's a lot of stuff going on that's very interesting. I think there's a lot of features in the pipeline that are being talked about that are 
very cool. Some that come to mind, like the pipe operator would definitely make my life easier. So you can write, you know, functions that, or you can take a value and pass it to multiple functions like in line. But what I think is great is that, you know, JavaScript is a, it's a living language. Every year there's like a new set of features that come out that people have championed and dissected and, and just there's so much conversation about these things that's making the language just generally better. And then, you know, something we didn't really touch on, but I think might actually be a very good thing for JavaScript core or like ECMAScript is TypeScript. I would like to see some stronger ways to type things within JavaScript natively. But just generally, I think, you know, so many people are doing such interesting things with the language and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing all your extensive knowledge you have about JavaScript. It's very obvious that you're very passionate about JavaScript. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure to talk about this uh, anytime. I can go on for hours really about about this stuff. Well, I think you just volunteered to come back for a part two. <laughs> absolutely. Or right. talk to me about React. I can get pretty excited about that too. Well, we'll do that too. All right, Daniel. Thank you so much. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give an email or a URL or Twitter, whatever you like? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Dan underscore Cortez underscore. And that's Cortez with an S. Or find me online on my website, which is dancortez.dev. Well, thanks again, Daniel. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Oh, 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 o